Section 9 of The Evil Genius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Evil Genius by Wilkie Collins. Section 9 The Mother. Mrs. Belbridge eyed her husband, prepared for a furious outbreak of rage. He stood silent, staring stupidly straight before him. The shock that had fallen on his dull brain had stunned it. For a time he was a big idiot, speechless, harmless, helpless. She put back the rubbish and replaced the plank, and picked up the chisel. Come, James, she said, pull yourself together. It was useless to speak to him. She took his arm and led him out to the cab that was waiting at the door. The driver, helping him to get in, noticed a piece of paper lying on the front seat. Advertisements, seeking publicity under all possible circumstances, are occasionally sent flying into the open windows of vehicles. The driver was about to throw the paper away, when Mrs. Belbridge, seeing it on the other side, took it out of his hand. "'It isn't print,' she said. "'It's writing.' A closer explanation showed that the writing was addressed to herself. Her correspondent must have followed her to the church, as well as to the house in St. John's Wood. He distinguished her by the name which she had changed that morning, under the sanction of the clergy and the law. This was what she read. Don't trouble yourself, madam, about the diamonds. You have made a mistake. You have employed the wrong man. Those words, and nothing more. Enough, surely, to justify the conclusion that he had stolen the diamonds. Was it worth while to drive to his lodgings? They tried the experiment. The expert had gone away on business. Nobody knew where. The newspaper came as usual on Friday morning. To Mrs. Belbridge's amazement, it set the question of the theft at rest on the highest authority. An article appeared in a conspicuous position thus expressed. Another of the many proofs that truth is stranger than fiction has just occurred at Liverpool. A highly respected firm of shipwreckers in that city received a strange letter at the beginning of the present week. Premising that he had some remarkable circumstances to communicate, the writer of the letter entered abruptly on the narrative which followed. A friend of his, connected with literature, had, it appeared, noticed a lady's visiting card on his desk, and had been reminded by it, in what way it was not necessary to explain, of a criminal case which had excited considerable public interest at the time, viz. the trial of Captain Westerfield for willfully casting away a ship under his command. Never having heard of the trial, the writer, at his friend's suggestion, consulted a file of newspapers, discovered the report, and became aware, for the first time, that a collection of Brazilian diamonds, consigned to the Liverpool firm, was missing from the wrecked vessel when she had been boarded by the salvage party, and had not been found since. Events, which it was impossible for him to mention, seeing that doing so would involve a breach of confidence placed in him in his professional capacity, had revealed to his knowledge a hiding-place in which these same diamonds, in all probability, were concealed. This circumstance had left him no alternative as an honest man, but to be beforehand with the persons who, as he believed, contemplated stealing the precious stones. He had, accordingly, taken them under his protection until they were identified and claimed by the rightful owners. In now appealing to these gentlemen, he stipulated that the claim should be set forth in writing, addressed to him under initials at a post office in London. If the lost property was identified to his satisfaction, he would meet, at a specified place and on a certain day and hour, a person accredited by the firm, and would personally restore the diamonds, without claiming, or consenting to receive, a reward. The conditions being complied with, this remarkable interview took place. The writer of the letter, described as an infirm old man very poorly dressed, fulfilled his engagement, 
took his receipt, and walked away without even waiting to be thanked. It is only an act of justice to add that the diamonds were afterwards counted, and not one of them was missing. Miserable, deservedly miserable, married pair. The stolen fortune, on which they had counted, had slipped through their fingers. The berths in the steamer for New York had been taken and paid for. James had married a woman with nothing besides herself to bestow on him, except an encumbrance in the shape of a boy. Late on the fatal wedding day, his first idea, when he was himself again after the discovery in the summer house, was to get back his passage money, to abandon his wife and his stepson, and to escape to America in a French steamer. He went to the office of the English company, and offered the places which he had taken for sale. The season of the year was against him. The passenger traffic to America was at its lowest ebb, and profits depended upon freights alone. If he still contemplated deserting his wife, he must also submit to sacrifice his money. The other alternative was, as he expressed it to himself, to have his pennies worth for his penny, and to turn his family to good account in New York. He had not quite decided what to do when he got home again on the evening of his marriage. At that critical moment in her life, the bride was equal to the demand on her resources. If she was foolish enough to allow James to act on his natural impulses, there were probably two prospects before her. In one state of his temper, he might knock her down. In the other state of his temper, he might leave her behind him. Her only hope of protecting herself, in either case, was to tame the bridegroom. In his absence, she wisely armed herself with the most irresistible fascinations of her sex. Never yet had he seen her dressed as she was dressed when he came home. Never yet had her magnificent eyes looked at him as they looked now. Emotions for which he was not prepared overcame this much-injured man. He stared at the bride in helpless surprise. That inestimable moment of weakness was all Mrs. Bubbridge asked for. Bewildered by his own transformation, James found himself reading the newspaper the next morning sentimentally, with his arm around his wife's waist. By a refinement of cruelty, not one word had been said to prepare little Sid for the dreary change which was now close at hand in her young life. The poor child had seen the preparations for departure, and had tried to imitate her mother in packing up. She had collected her few morsels of darned and ragged clothing, and had gone upstairs to put them into one of the dilapidated old trunks in the garret playground, when the servant was sent to bring her back to the sitting-room. There, enthroned in an easy-chair, sat a strange lady, and there, hiding behind the chair in undisguised dislike of the visitor, was her little brother Roderick. Sid looked timidly at her mother, and her mother said, "'Here is your aunt.' The personal appearance of Mrs. Wigger might have suggested a modest distrust of his own abilities to Lavater, when that self-sufficient man wrote his famous work on physiognomy. Whatever betrayal of her inner self her face might have presented, in the distant time when she was young, was now completely overlaid by a service of a flabby fat which, assisted by green spectacles, kept the virtues or vices of this woman's nature a profound secret until she opened her lips. When she used her voice, she let out the truth. Nobody could hear her speak, and doubt for a moment that she was an inveterately ill-natured woman. "'Make your curtsy, child,' said Miss Wigger. Nature had so toned her voice as to make it worthy the terrors of her face. But for her petticoats, it would have been certainly taken for the voice of a man. The child obeyed, trembling. "'You're to go with me,' the schoolmistress proceeded, "'and to be taught to make yourself useful under my roof.' Sid seemed to be incapable of understanding the fate which was in store for her. She sheltered herself behind her merciless mother. "'I'm going away with you, Mama,' she said. "'With you and Rick!' Her mother took her by the shoulders, and pushed her across the room to her aunt. The child looked at the formidable female creature with a man's voice and the green spectacles. "'You belong to me,' said Miss Wigger, by way of encouragement. 
and I have come to take you away. At those dreadful words, terror shook little Sid from head to foot. She fell on her knees with a cry of misery which might have melted the heart of a savage. Oh, mamma, mamma, don't leave me behind. What have I done to deserve it? Oh, pray, pray, pray have some pity on me. Her mother was as selfish and as cruel a woman as ever lived, but even her hard heart felt faintly the influence of this most intimate and most sacred of all human relationships. Her florid cheeks turned pale. She hesitated. Miss Wigger marked, through her own green medium, that moment of maternal indecision, and saw that it was time to assert her experience as an instructress of youth. "'Leave it to me,' she said to her sister. "'You never did know, and you never will know, how to manage children.' She advanced. The child threw herself shrieking on the floor. Miss Wigger's long arms caught her up, held her, shook her. Be quiet, you imp! It was needless to tell her to be quiet. Sid's little curly head sank on the schoolmistress's shoulder. She was carried into exile without a word or a cry. She had fainted. End of section 9. Recording by Todd.